the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Over the past 50-plus years, today's guest, Reverend Dr. Matthew Fox, has challenged doctrines, called leaders to account, awakened minds, and healed wounded souls. A spiritual theologian, an Episcopal priest, and an activist for gender and eco-justice, he is believed to be one of the most challenging religious spiritual teachers in America. Matthew is a founder of the University of Creation Spirituality in California and the recipient of many awards, including the Abbey Courage of Conscious Peace Award. He has written 39 books that have been translated into over 60 languages. His newest book is Essential Writings on Creation Spirituality. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Matthew, it has been said that your work through creation spirituality calls for renewal of our hearts, minds, and souls. Can you explain to us what creation spirituality is? Well, it's a, a new paradigm, really an older paradigm, a new version of Christianity that um, is the oldest tradition in the Bible. It begins in the Hebrew Bible with the oldest source there, the J source, and it begins with original blessing instead of original sin, because first of all, original sin is is a human problem, but the universe is 13.8 billion years old, so (laughs) what we've inherited is a blessing, and the blessing is a theological word for goodness. And so that gets missed if you start everything with the fall or redemption. Uh, And so much of of Christianity has fallen into that trap, whereas uh, Jesus did not begin that way because no Jew uh, begins with original sin. Original sin is not a Jewish concept. Every life will say that original sin is not only not in the Bible, it's alien to Jewish thinking. So that means it's alien to Jesus thinking. So... um, Spirituality is feminist because it's the tradition of the wisdom or tradition of Israel, which is the tradition that Jesus himself belonged to. And that tradition is about finding God in nature, essentially. And wisdom in Hebrew and many other languages is feminine. So um, that is a big shift as well. And of course, it's about the sacredness of nature, creation, spirituality, beginning with the sacredness of, of nature. And so that, of course, is the real issue regarding uh, eco-destruction and the, the war on Mother Earth that is going on at this time, and with the climate change is, is just a, a sign of it, a symptom. So um, for all these reasons, and then, of course, a, a big commitment to the prophetic and justice-oriented tradition that Jesus was a part of also. And um, for all these reasons, then, it really recognized, uh, it really is a, a shift in consciousness religious consciousness for for many people, and um, it, it's proven to be very powerful for people because it speaks to these real issues today of women's rights and, and the divine feminine and the earth rights and um, justice, whether it be racial justice or, or gender justice or um, social justice and eco-justice. So... Um, yeah, and it disturbed, as you put, uh, quite a lot of people in high places. <laughs> when I wrote my book, Original Blessing, the roof of the Vatican kind of went off. 
and they came after me because I was a Dominican uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, a Dominican order, for 34 years. But then they silenced me for a year. And this is not Pope Francis's Vatican. This is before him. Uh, they silenced me for a year, and then they, three years later, they expelled me from the order after 34 years. And that's when I became Episcopalian to work with young people and to uh, carry on my work. So I raised a Catholic, and to me, you know, to, to think of life being a blessing, it makes so much sense because I'm one of those people. I mean, I'm Catholic through and through, a, a Eucharistic minister, all of it. My kids went to Catholic school. And yet when I attend Mass, it's so routine to me. It's not alive. It's, you know, stand, kneel, repeat. And it, I have a hard time finding yeah. God in that. Yeah, the the thing you say about uh, the, the routine of the Mass, that's what I, why I became Episcopalian. I knew at the time, and that's what Pope Benedict was Pope, that there's no cre- be no creativity in, in Mass, but I felt very strongly the Mass is very important. Ritual is very important for human survival and keeping joy alive and, and empowerment and all the rest. So that's what I did in becoming a Episcopal priest. I reinvented the Mass, uh, the, the forum, bringing in rave, you see, bringing the body back. And so, de- and the new uh, art forms, uh, DJs and VJs and rap and so forth. I mean, this is new language in which to pray. It's like in the 12th century, the church had this explosion of Gothic architecture and of these wonderful stained glass windows. Well, the stained glass windows of the 12th century, which are the greatest ever, um, they became a whole new way to pray and to uh, to learn about the stories of Jesus and so forth. So it, it was a whole new technology, you see. So in our time, in my lifetime, we've moved into this uh, new technology, and why shouldn't it be used for, for the purpose of awakening the sacred? So we have what we call the Cosmic Mass, and we've done over 100 20 of these, I think. Now, we did one at the World Parliament a few years ago in Toronto, and 500 people came, including uh, Buddhists in their robes and everything, and people said it was a high point of the 12-day conference for them, and, and it should be, of course, as worship is supposed to be. So people dance instead of looking for what page they should be reading from, and um, the whole idea of dancing is an ancient way to pray, of course. The indigenous people everywhere pray by dancing, not by reading uh, prayers from a book. And as you say, standing or kneeling out of rote. So we have wonderful experiences with this Mass. I mean, amazing things happen. I could tell you one quick story. Uh, We we had a Mass for a thousand people at a Sounds True retreat in the uh, Colorado Mountains uh, several years ago. And and, uh, and they were from all traditions, because I asked as we began, you know, and there were Jewish rabbis were there, and there were Buddhists and Hindus and Sufis and Protestants and Catholics and all the rest. And afterwards, a woman came up, she said, I'm an atheist. I'm a fierce atheist. I'm such a fierce atheist that when I walk down the street and there's a church, I cross the street to go by the church. <laughs> and then she said, but she said, during this this service we just had, she said, uh, we do a grief experience every time. Instead of talking about confessing our sins, we, we get down on all fours and we grieve. That's a very powerful experience. She said to me, when we did that grieving experience, and then she pointed to her heart, she touched her chest. She said, something in me shifted. She said, by the time communion came along, I was hungry for it. I had to have some. And she said, this, this mass has changed my entire life. Uh, I'm no longer thirsty again. Right. So um, I couldn't agree more. We need life in our liturgies, and the young people have new languages. Why aren't we using them? Right. Do you think what happened to that woman is because she went deep into her soul, which is where, you know, we believe God lives? I mean, did she touch him by going that deep? Exactly, yeah. And you see the grieving experience. We go deep, you know, with joy and beauty. That's what the mystic called the Via Positiva. But we also go deep, deep with grief. And um, in that particular part of the Mass, it's only a part of it, so the whole Mass is, includes the joy, but um, she obviously touched something, and, and we were doing it together, you see, so we're all making these sounds, grieving sounds, um, on the floor, as we were on the floor. And um, 
the whole experience just really moved her. She participated, of course, because, you know, atheists grieve, after all. We all grieve. That's what it is to be human, isn't it? And we all experience joy as well. And that's also what it means to be human. So, I mean, all of this should come out in our, in our, our, our liturgies, and they shouldn't be um, repressed, or, and liturgies should not be reduced to words and reading and, and uh, as you say, rote ceremony. No, there has to be the spontaneity, too. And that's just beautiful what we do. We, we dance, we have a theme for each Mass, and then we have slides uh, that are projected and when we dance with these themes. And so we all dance in this context and with music, and it's very powerful, and you don't need preachers so much, you know, and you don't need a lot of books. You, you're there as a group listening to the music, and um, it's a, just a very powerful experience. It follows the, the direction, it follows the order of, of the traditional liturgy. Part of the path to creation spirituality, and you've been touching upon these, but there are four that you write about. Can you just tell us what those four are and what each means? Sure. Okay. And, and this is the, the first two are traditional language. The first is called the via positiva, the positive way, and that, or the positive path. And that's the way of joy and wonder and amazement and awe. And um, that's where everything begins, I think, with the awe of life. Rabbi Hessel says, awe is a beginning of wisdom. So that's the first path, joy and awe. And, and of course, gratitude comes from that, and even reverence comes from that. The second path is a via negativa, the negative path. And that's a path of silence. And so the, what negative means there is letting go of all kinds of input and, and so forth. That's the path of contemplation and stillness. As the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. That's stillness. And that's what... Thich Nhat Hanh is talking about when he's talking about mindfulness that comes from stillness, mind emptiness. But the second part of the Via Negativa is suffering and grief, that we just talked about. And that's very real, too, of course. I mean, look at what's happening in Ukraine right now. And so it's just a, a daily news example of suffering and unnecessary suffering because evil is obviously involved there in making this happen. So much suffering. So, um, the negative is very real. Then the, then the next path is, now these two paths are not in the traditional language. I, I made these two paths, I gave them a name. The via creativa, the path of creativity. And uh, this is so important. This is equally deep. It's as deep as joy and as deep as grief and silence is creativity. Like Meister Eckhart, my favorite Christian mystic, says, um, I once had a dream. Even though a man, I was pregnant, pregnant with nothingness. And out of this nothingness, God was born. And he talks a lot about how we give birth to Christ. He, he said at a Christmas sermon, he said, what good is it to me if Mary gave birth to Christ 1,400 years ago, and I don't give birth to Christ in my own person and time and culture? So creativity is so important. That we encounter the divine there. I wrote a book, Creativity, where the divine and the human meet. So it's a mystical experience. Then the fourth path is to be a transformativa, because that's the path of justice and compassion. And that becomes a test, if you will, or a, a guide for our creativity. After all, look at this war in Ukraine. There's a lot of creativity here. Russia is trying out their latest supersonic weapon in this war. So imagination and creativity can be, can be for good or can be for evil. And so we have to steer our creativity, and that's where... Jesus teaching about the compassionate is creating heaven's compassion and so forth, and the Buddha's teaching and Dalai Lama, who says we can do away with all religion, but we can't do away with compassion. Compassion is my religion. That's where that becomes energized, because the previous three paths, we're ready to go in making a world that's healthier and more just and therefore more celebratory. And then you go back then. It's, it's, the image I have is the spiral, you see. Um, this is not about climbing a ladder with four lungs. It's a spiral that expands. And then after justice, the justice path, you go back to the via positiva, because what is justice about? The whole point is to bring more people to the table, to the banquet of joy and, and gratitude for existence that the via positiva is all about. So then the paths, they, they, they um, move again in a, in a uh, ever-expanding 
direction. So those are the four paths. You just mentioned what's taking place in Ukraine, and, and we're still struggling with a pandemic and people of dealing with financial instability. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of pain out in the world. How can we maintain a sense of peace with all of this turmoil? How do we find that balance between the struggle and the blessings? Right. Well, of course, that's the $64,000 question. But, um, you know, I have these daily meditations, and I've been, it's called Daily Meditations, MatthewFox.org, and it's free. And uh, I've been writing about that a lot lately. I bring in the, the mystics and, and the dark night of the soul, of course. We're in, I, even before Ukraine, we were in, I think, by we, I mean our species, the dark night of our species because of global warming. We don't know how that's going to end up, and that's what the dark night is about. It's about chaos. It's about not knowing how things are going to end up. And and so the mystics have a lot to say about that. And one thing is to trust, and that's the real meaning of faith, is trust. Um, Julia Norwich, my most recent book is on her, and she lived through the great pandemic of the 14th century, the bubonic plague, which is much worse than the pandemics we're living through. It killed between one out of two and one out of three people in Europe. And... Um, and she says that um, faith is the trust that all things are in God and God is in all things. Well, that's that sense of sacredness that we experience in the Via Positiva, you see. And so you have to stay linked to the Via Positiva. You have to keep that alive even during hard times. You have to um, uh, remember. And that's, of course, what a lot of prayer is about, is it's about remembering, like Jesus said of the Last Supper, do this in memory of me. You have to remember the beauty. So the truth is that we're always wrestling with good and evil, if you will, and the sacred and evil. And um, uh, this Ukraine war is just kind of a, a blow-up of it all. And, and as you say, the pandemic. But, you know, a lot of people learned a lot in the pandemic. Because of silence, they were it was a via negative experience. But because they stayed home and so forth, and and uh, didn't go out a lot, there was more introspection. And they asking questions about what is life really about? What is my work really about? Am I really giving back the way I want to give back? So um, the four paths raise all these questions, and um, uh, it's about kind of purifying our intentions. That's what the mystics say about the dark night of the soul. It's a purification process. And even our country, I mean, we've been so divided lately, uh, politically and so forth, and there's been so much hate radio and hate television and hate politics that it's just, um, this has to, you know, be be let go of. We have to move mm -hmm. into a better place. And I do think that what America is doing trying to help Ukraine is bringing America together and together with many other nations in the world, certainly European nations, that are trying to stand up to this latest dictator. We often hear people say, I'm only one person, what can I do? But if you look at the negative of it, look at how much damage one person can do to the world. So, you know, by flipping that exactly. around, if we put out joy and kindness and love, exactly. look at the power each one of us has. Exactly. Wonderfully said. You know, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century said, one human being can do more evil than all the other species put together which is really an amazing statement. And he said it 800 years before Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or Vladimir Putin. How did he know that back in the 13th century? Because he respected our powers of creativity and intellect. He realized, and that's the whole point I was making between the via creativity and via transformative. What do we do with our creativity? Do we create more nuclear missiles with it? Do we invade another country with it? Or do we take it and use it for healing, for celebrating, for um, seeking knowledge. Uh, one thing that has me, let's just say, positive these days is this new uh, web telescope that's, that we sent up there. And, you know, this is human genius that we could do something like that. And this telescope is going to look back to the beginning of, of the universe and the brilliant light that was born uh, at that time that we've inherited. And this is all part of original blessing, isn't it? So this is why original blessing is so important. We have to stay connected like an umbilical cord to the Via Positiva, especially when times are rough like this, when times are tough. And um, 
that's a big part of our, our healing and then our empowerment, like you say. Just one person will think of together how much we can do that is good and beautiful and healing and, and just, making a just society. We just have to remember we were born a blessing and we continue to be a blessing throughout our entire life. Exactly. And we co-create with God and uh, with the divine, with spirit, and that's our job, to co-create. And that's where, the, again, the creativity is so important because that's the one thing we have going for us as a species is our creativity. You know, we've only been around about 250,000 years, and we've taken over the planet. No other species took over the planet in that short of time. So we're powerful, but like the client said, but we're also very dangerous. So we have to look at evil. We have to look at what's happening in the Ukraine, what's happening vis-a-vis Mother Earth with climate change. And Pope Francis' brilliant encyclical on Laudate Si, on environment, was so wonderfully done, and it's so important that this is our common home. And it's this can bring us all together. You know, I, I wrote in my book on the Catholic Christ, there's no such thing as a Roman Catholic ocean and a Buddhist um, cornfield and a Lutheran sun and a Baptist moon and, and an atheist river. You know, the the nature itself calls us all. We all need a, a healthy planet. We all need nature and can love nature and find the sacred, find the divine in nature. So this could bring us all together, just like the Ukraine war is bringing Europeans together and many others. So um, the, the plight of Mother Earth can bring us all together and get out of our silos of uh, attacking other religions and other nationalities, other races, and all this racism, tribalism, and sexism, uh, it's, um, you know, it's, it's not worthy of us. It's adolescent. We should move out of that and grow up. The book is Essential Writings on Creation Spirituality. If you would like to learn more about Matthew and his work, you can visit MatthewFox.org. Matthew, in about 30 seconds or less, What's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? A beautiful um, statement by the poet Derek Walcott from the Caribbean, who won the Nobel Prize for Poetry in 1972. In his acceptance speech, he said, The fate of poetry is to fall in love with the world in spite of history. Well, I think that's the fate of all of us. We are here to fall in love with the world in spite of the bad things that humans do in history in order to... Um, or should I say, uh, wake up our species, that we may be as beautiful as the other species are and as beautiful as God intended when we were made. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Joan. I appreciate very much your questions and interest. Carry on your good work. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, but only if you make a good impression. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills. To learn more, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. to your health. Joining us today to talk about a solution for those suffering from irritable bowel syndrome caused by small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is Phoebe Lapine, a gluten-free chef, culinary instructor, and author of the book, SIBO Made Simple. Welcome, Phoebe. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. So, Phoebe, many people today suffer from IBS. Experts estimate that over 60% of all IBS cases are caused by small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So can you explain for us, what is SIBO? 
Sure. So I think there's a bit of a misconception going around in kind of this new education around gut health. Um, A lot of talk about the microbiome, about quote unquote, good gut bacteria. And the reality is that the majority of that good gut bacteria is in the large intestine, in the colon, not throughout the entire digestive tract. Though, of course, there's some populations, other places, but it really doesn't belong in the small intestine because that's where we absorb our essential nutrients and bacteria don't really have a function. And In fact, if it's there and competing for those food resources, it can cause a host of uncomfortable symptoms, which are related to IBS and downwind SIBO. So what happens is due to many different types of um, breakdowns in your machinery, it can cause bacteria or even fungi, other types of organisms as well, to overgrow in your small intestines. And then when those organisms eat your food, they release gas, and that gas doesn't really have anywhere to go so far up your intestinal tract. So it can really cause very uncomfortable bloating. It can cause flatulence, both like burping and out the other end since it's so far away from the other exit ramp. You know, of course, a lot of the other hallmarks of IBS, you know, constipation, diarrhea, and then some more kind of insidious symptoms like brain fog, skin issues, nutrient deficiencies, since again, they're eating your own nutrients, um, weight loss, weight gain, depending on what kind of critters are overgrowing. And, you know, it's got a big overlap with autoimmune disease because of a lot of the, the dysfunction that's caused in that area of the gut, which can lead to intestinal permeability and then food sensitivities. Because everything that you just described could be attributed to something else, how is this problem diagnosed? Through a breath test. So there are over, you know, 40 different conditions that could present, you know, those hallmark four main symptoms of IBS, the bloating, the gas, the constipation, the diarrhea. Um, For SIBO in particular, we're lucky because there's a test for it. Um, There's some argument about how accurate the testing is, but meta-analysis has come back that, you know, whatever you want to call it, people with abnormal tests tend to do better and have improved numbers once they go through treatment. How is SIBO usually treated? So there are a few different methods. Um, The first one is just conventional antibiotics. Uh, The important thing about having a test in the first place is kind of determining which types of critters are overgrowing so that you know which types of medication will be most effective. So those with hydrogen-dominant SIBO will take a drug called Zyfaxin or Rifaximin um, in the conventional aisle. And then if it's methane-dominant SIBO, you might have to add on um, another antibiotic on top of that. But then there's incredible data also for the herbal antimicrobial route. So these are various compound herbs, but then also kind of single herbs like oregano oil, berberine herbs, and then specifically for methane, um, allicin garlic, which is a derivative of garlic. I know a lot of people with IBS react to garlic, but this is just a special derivative that's incredibly antimicrobial and good for those methanogens. And then the third option is something called the elemental diet, which is really not a diet at all. It's a medical solution. And um, you basically drink it in place of meals for a few weeks. And um, because it's your nutrients in its most elemental form, it gets absorbed kind of immediately upon reaching the small intestines and doesn't have a chance to feed anything below. What's the most important part of a treatment plan? The most important thing for anyone's uh, treatment plan is to first uncover your root causes. So why is the SIBO occurring? Is it because you have low stomach acid? Is it because, you know, you don't have a gallbladder anymore? Is it because of maybe a host of different autoimmune conditions that could be limiting the way that food moves through your small intestine? Is it because you have endometriosis and there could be, you know, various growths outside of your uterus that are compressing your intestines and forcing things not to move through enough? Is it, you know, that you had some sort of abdominal surgery and have scar tissue internally that you didn't even know about? That's, again, kind of constricting your intestines. You have to kind of go through the list and it's very, very long and uncover, you know, what your causes may be. One of the most common causes is just a simple case of food poisoning and some of the damage that can arise to how our migrating motor complex, which is this system that moves moves food through the small intestine, how that functions. That's one of the main buckets for why people get SIBO. But then I think what many practitioners are not equipped to help people with or just 
don't spend enough time helping people with is what happens in the aftermath. So again, the prevention to make sure that it's not a chronic condition, um, which again goes back to making sure that you at least identify and protect against some of your root causes. So it's a kind of fine line after the fact with diet and lifestyle to make sure that you're healing for the long haul and also making sure that you're not contributing to another form of dysbiosis of gut imbalance with the beneficial bacteria in your large intestine because those are so important. The book is SIBO Made Simple. Phoebe, thank you so much for joining us. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Does grief still grip your heart whenever you think about the loss of a beloved pet? Losing our animals is one of the most difficult parts of loving them. Today's guest, Mary Beth Decker, debunks the myths that leave us crippled with grief, and she offers hope to help us navigate the loss. Mary Beth is the author of Peace in Passing, Comfort for Loving Humans During Animal Transitions. Welcome, Mary Beth. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad to be here, Joan. Thank you for uh, having me. So, Mary Beth, losing a pet is devastating. Anyone who's ever gone through that will tell you just how heartbreaking it can be. They're, they're a member of the family. Why did you write this book, Peace and Passing? Well, I started with helping people through the, their animal transitions. Uh, this is the second edition, and there's a lot more in it. But what I found is there's a lot of difficult beliefs out there that don't help us feel grief. For instance, um, if you've ever heard, heard, it's only a dog, get over it. <laughs> Excuse me, that was a member of my family, and I may have felt more love from that than that lovely animal um, consistently than maybe the people in my life. Right. <laughs> right? It was, so there's that, and there, there was the, the belief that, um, that when animals pass, um, they're lost to us forever. And uh, I've met many animals in the afterlife, and so I wanted to say that that's not true. They're still around and still love us. I wanted to convey some of the realities that I deal with uh, when I work with animals. And also, this time around, I wanted to help people when they start to notice their animal declining. What can they do? What mindsets could they have that might help them navigate and make good decisions and then find peace after after their animal leaves the planet. You know, what you were just describing, it's the same types of things that we would do with a, a human family member. And, and I was laughing when you said that sometimes we're closer to our animals than we are to people. I know when I had my dog, Ginger, it was the best experience in true unconditional love. She was always there. And it didn't matter if you scolded her or whatever. Within a minute, she'd be back giving you kisses. And, and it was just such a, a beautiful relationship of, of love and, and true love. It, it is so wonderful. And I think that uh, that's that's their gift to us many times is that... Um, we hear people preach about unconditional love, but sometimes we need to look to the animal kingdom to actually experience it for ourselves and see that as an example for, uh, gee, you know, there we go. Somebody can actually do it. Isn't that wonderful? And to feel that in our hearts and feel so loved by some other being is uh, it's healing in itself. You're a retired naval officer. How did you get started doing this work? Uh, it, it, it is a as some song said, it was a long and winding path. Um, I had, I believe what it was, was I had some things that I needed to get done before I had room in my, my life for animal communication. And um, so what I think, being a naval officer allowed me to visit and live in other cultures. Like I was in Japan for three years and visited many countries. I think that opened my mind to possibilities. And so after retirement, I started working on energy healing for humans. And my dog started communicating with me. It, I didn't even know there was such a thing as animal communication at the time. I had asked my friend uh, that my dog, a couple of my dogs who had passed, came and visited me. Um, and then my dog, Tibor, who was, he's a rescue. He had some issues. I started seeing visions. I thought, well, once is interesting, but 
uh, twice. Um, it is time to pay attention. So I went and got training. And what I found out was working with animals is wonderful in itself. Working with people who love their animals enough to come to an animal communicator, my golly, that's like heaven. And I, I was just, I just fought, fell into it and, and, and kept going. Mary Beth, can anyone communicate with a pet? I have a funny way of thinking about it. If, if you've ever seen your animal staring at you intently, what I pick up is, I am speaking to you as clearly as I can, my dear human. How can you not hear me? And so, yes, uh, our logical thinking gets in the way of feeling intuition and hearing and communicating on an intuitive basis. Their primary feeling is, or sensing is through feeling and emotions and energy. I would, I guess that's how I would say it, uh, rather than the rational thinking mind. And that, in this kind of area, they've got the advantage. And we need to catch up and, and remind our brains that we have an intuitive side and we can, we can have two-way conversations with them. So how do we learn to do that? We start by looking at all the different ways that we can connect and we practice a little bit of it. And we, we, all, we also change our mindset to look for the ways that they have all, already connected with us. So um, if you've ever thought, if my dog could say, da-da-da, she just told me this. If she could speak, she just told me this. Or we're, we're hanging out and all of a sudden we think, oh, you know what? The cat's still outside and, and there she is uh, looking in like, hello, hello, I want to come in. It's gotten too cold out here. Uh, we start looking for those little pieces of information and then we do it deliberately. We, we learn to listen, but we also learn to speak, either using our, our voice, but also in our head. And we use pictures. If, if, let me say this as clearly as I can. It's not like, you know, with our eyes open, but it's like using a memory of what we're trying to convey to them and some emotions. Like, um, I'm going to go out, but I'm going to be back. So you could picture you think of your animals, I got dogs and cats, showing them I'm leaving the house, and then I show them I'm coming back, and I say, don't worry, I'll be back. And in my head, I feel joy and happiness for returning. Um, those are quick examples. Usually we have to practice and be mm-hmm. open, but uh, that's, that's sort of the beginning of um, connecting with our animals. Well, I love when you had said, that we need to pay attention. I had mentioned my dog, Ginger, and an interesting story. uh, I got Ginger. She was a rescue. She was a foster dog, and she had a a tough life up until the time we got her. And we got her a few weeks after my mom passed away. And Ginger was so protective of all of us that we used to joke and say, oh, it's grandma. You know, we were just joking. Ginger's grandma. She's taking care of us. And that was our family joke. When my mom passed away, I didn't get to the hospital in time. And it was always a big regret of mine that I wasn't with her when she died, when she passed. And when it was Ginger's time, when she got sick and we needed to make the decision to to help her end her life, I was in mm-hmm. the animal hospital and I held her in my arms as she passed away. And she died in my arms. And I remember oh. thinking after that, it was almost like she did take on my mom's spirit in a way. And I got to have closure with my mom's passing because Ginger represented my mother to me and I held Ginger when she died. And I think when we start to pay attention to the blessings of our pets, I think it can add so much to our life when we're mindful of it. Oh, I think that's so true. And indeed, um, I have met uh I'm going to stop and just say, that's lovely. How lovely. Somehow there, it, it was the energy of your mom. I'm sure that your mom was there and allowed you to feel that closure. And uh, Ginger was the conduit. How lovely that is. I, I think what you're saying is you do pay attention. You, you pay attention to these beautiful gifts that you're given. And they're there. They're always there for us. Mary Beth, what do you hope the readers take away from your book? 
I, I hope that one of the things that they they realize so clearly is that uh, there are no coincidences. They were meant to be with the animals that were with, with them, and that love is eternal. It doesn't stop when the animal passes, and I believe that they are with us as long as we love them. And that the only thing I want people to hear is that whatever decision they made for the animals in love carries the animal through their transition because we make decisions, the best decisions we can from a place of love for our animals. And I hope that brings peace to people. The book is Peace and Passing, Comfort for Loving Humans During Animal Transitions. If you'd like to learn more about Mary Beth and her work, you can visit sacredgrove.com. Mary Beth, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm so glad to do this. Thank you for giving me a chance to talk about my book, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As we leap into the spring housing market, one of the main concerns is what you can expect when it comes to buying or selling a house. Hi, my name is Evelyn Amarula from Infinity Property Group with Keller Williams, here to discuss three things experts say you can expect this spring. One, mortgage rates will continue to rise. Freddie Mac reports the 30-year fixed mortgage rate has increased more than a full point the past six months. Experts believe rates will continue to rise. Two, housing inventory will increase. According to Realtor.com, the number of newly listed homes has grown the last two months. And per the National Association of Realtors, the month's supply of inventory increased for the first time in eight months. Three, house prices will rise. Though the number of homes entering the market is increasing, buyer demand stands very strong. With the demand for housing still outnumbering supply, many experts believe home prices will continue to appreciate just at a slightly slower pace in the last two years. Bottom line, if you're thinking of buying, act now before mortgage rates and home prices increase further. If you're thinking of selling, you may want to sell soon so you can beat the increase in competition that's about to come to market. If you have further questions about buying, selling, investing, or any general real estate questions, please reach out at any time at Real Estate Eve on Instagram or email me at Evelyn at infinitypropertygroup.com. I'd love to connect with you. Did you know that athlete's foot can spread to other parts of the skin, including hands, groin, and scalp? Hi, I am Dr. Anant Joshi, dietarist practicing in Woodland Park, New Jersey at Advanced Foot Care of NJLLC. Athlete's foot is a fungal infection of the skin, including between the toes. The fungus tends to thrive in warm, damp areas and can cause itching, cracking, blistering, and peeling of the feet. It's important to keep your feet clean and dry. Antifungal treatments in the form of sprays, powders, or lotions to apply to your feet are available in most drugstores. If the fungus is spreading or worsening after treatment, a person should see their doctor who can prescribe oral antifungal medications for the condition. If you'd like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today is Linda Mitchell, a board-certified professional and executive coach, speaker, workshop leader, and reinvention expert. She's the founder of Linda Mitchell Coaching and Healing. Linda is here today to discuss using the power of the subconscious brain. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Joan. Linda, this is one of my most favorite conversations to have because I am fascinated by the way our brains work. We spend most of our time living from our subconscious programming. And Dr. Lipton has said that this programming is written by the time we're seven years old, and it's not usually our own programming. So where do these programs come from? You know, that's so key to know where they come from and to recognize that. So many of these patterns and these programs are developed at a very young age, perhaps with an interaction you had with someone or a situation you were in where you made a decision right then and there as a very young child, this is difficult or, oh, I'm not good enough, right? And then we begin to carry this through our lifetime. 
even if it's no longer true, it's a belief that we've instilled. And that makes it difficult to do the things we want to do when we're carrying around these subconscious brain beliefs, these limiting beliefs. I, too, am a brain nerd. I love studying the brain. I've been studying the brain for decades. It's fascinating. And the more we learn, the more we know we don't know. But what we learn now means that we can change things for our present day moment. Absolutely. Because, you know, you can see how this is operating in your own life because we live on autopilot. We're operating from the way we're programmed and and you get in an argument with someone and you have that immediate response. That's the subconscious programming. So if this is what we're used to doing, we're on autopilot, what happens when we keep repeating this programming over and over again? Well, if you keep repeating it over and over again, you're going to get the same results, right? So the key is to learn to use your subconscious brain to help you create what you want. I call our subconscious brain our magnificent manifesting machine. Why? Because it is a huge part of achieving any goal or outcome. What we really need to recognize is that our subconscious mind can only receive and act on the thoughts and commands that we give it. It doesn't edit or evaluate like, oh, that's a good one, or oh, that's a silly one. No, that's not its job. So our subconscious has really no choice but to act on the commands we give it. So we need to figure out when the old patterns come up again, we have to go, oh, no, thanks, but no thanks. You're on break. Here are my new empowering thoughts. So what we need to do is give it new commands, right? New commands that are going to help us achieve our goals. I'm going to give you an example. So we have to realize that we can't just ask for what we want, right? Because asking implies you may get it or you may not. But if you, for example, you mix up all the ingredients for a cake and you put it in a hot oven, do you stand in front of the hot oven and go, hmm, I may or may not get a cake? No, you're fully committed. You know, right? So we have to give our brain that same commitment and that same command. Be fully committed to what you want and be in a place of expectation and belief that you're going to get it because the subconscious brain will continually create a match to the vibration that you're putting out there. And it's really learning to spend less time in the subconscious and shifting it to being more conscious and mindful. Doctors Deepak Chopra and Rudy Tanzi wrote a wonderful book a few years ago called Super Brain. And in it, they teach us mm. how to learn to use our brain instead of our brain using us. And and like you're saying, it, it's learning how to make those shifts to being mindful and conscious and present. Exactly. Because the brain is compelled to deliver a perfect vibrational match to what we ask it to do. Reality always matches what you think about and focus on most of the time. And I know you've heard me say this probably hundreds of times, but it's so true. What we think about comes about what we focus on expands. So be sure you're focusing on what you want to create and not the problem that you're in the middle of. And I think that's a great place to leave this, to focus on the things you want to create. If you would like to learn more about Linda and her work, you can visit lindamitchellcoachingandhealing.com. And as always, to hear more from Linda, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Linda. Linda, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to be here. Thanks. Critical thinking is a disciplined way of thinking that can be applied to any topic or problem. It is the ability to clearly and logically consider information that is presented to us. There is value in thinking critically in every aspect of our lives, from making personal decisions to questioning media reports to assessing work projects. Applying critical thinking is an essential skill everyone should be trying to hone. Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my Ph.D. in life. The conventional view serves to protect us from the painful job of thinking. When we were children, adults told us how to behave and what we should believe, and we blindly followed their instruction. Then as we aged, we were taught to expand our minds and consider concepts and opinions that may be in conflict with what we previously thought. This expansion of mind opened the door to infinite possibilities and challenged us in ways never experienced before. Listening to different ideas enabled us to develop the process of analyzing information in order to form our own judgment. We learned to discern what works best for us and no longer were we dependent on what we were told to do. We could form our own opinion. This critical thought process taught us how to create the conscious decisions 
that affect the quality of our lives. Today, in a world of social media, around-the-clock news programs, and propaganda reporting, cultivating a critical thought process is more challenging than ever before. Sometimes it feels like we've lost the ability to think for ourselves or form our own conclusions. I often wonder if critical thinking is a lost art. With information overload, we need to think about thinking. Why is this so important? Critical thinking encourages curiosity. Curiosity helps us remain vigilant and gain knowledge about situations or our environment. Critical thinking enhances creativity. Creativity enables us to come up with different ideas and perspectives. Critical thinking reinforces problem-solving skills. Critical thinking develops independent thinking, the ability to take in various opinions or facts and then develop our own conclusion offers a freedom from manipulation. The good news is that critical thinking is a learned skill and we can get better at it. Here are three ways to develop critical thinking. Question assumptions. Don't believe everything at face value. Ask questions, conduct research. You don't always know what you think you know. Reason through logic. Ask yourself, is the argument supported at every point by evidence? Do all the pieces of evidence build on each other to produce a sound conclusion? Diversify thought. Get outside of your personal bubble and open your mind to new perspectives. As the Greek philosopher Aristotle said, it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Never stop questioning or thinking. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more empowering tips and information, visit joanherman.com. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.